Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. This week on the podcast, we have Dr. Sarah Bernard with us. Dr. Sarah Bernard is a disabled autistic ADHD doctor based in Perth. She is a research team member at Autistic Doctors International and is passionate about disability advocacy and neurodiversity in healthcare. So Sarah, can you tell us what does neurodivergence mean to you? Sure, I'd love to. Um, Actually, I think this is a good question for an autistic person. Uh, I like it because one of the ways my autistic thinking works is I tend to focus on the details of questions, but my ADHD thinking likes to rush in before the question is even finished. So what my autistic ADHD brain actually hears at first is what does neurodivergence mean? And I think, oh, I'm being asked for a definition of neurodivergence, which is lovely because there's nothing I like more than fact-based questions about the history and definition of words. It's like autistic heaven. But then my detail noticing autistic brain catches the end of the question and you ended it with, what does it mean to you? And I realise I'm actually being asked a bigger question than just definitions. So my guess is you're inviting me to share my personal interpretation of what neurodivergence means in my life. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay, cool, (laughs) cool. Um, So I think it's kind of a fun example of my neurodivergent thinking, you know, where I have to work quite hard to interpret questions, um, especially if I'm talking with a neurotypical person, um, it doesn't actually come very naturally to me. So I kind of wish sometimes that I had a translator with me to translate questions from neurotypical into autistic and ADHD. But um, getting back to your question, um, so I do have something to say on the definition of neurodivergence, um, and that is that the word was invented by Cassiana Asasumasu, who is a multiply neurodivergent activist, and it was always meant to be as inclusive as possible. And neurodivergence just means any brain type um, that diverges or is different from the typical, and that includes anything from autistic and ADHD and dyslexic brains to brains with mental illness, brains with dementia, brains with epilepsy. Um, And so if people with those kinds of brains identify as neurodivergent, they should definitely feel welcome um, in neurodivergent spaces. And I think that's really important because the thing that unites all of us, um, all of these neurodivergent brains, is that society isn't set up for us to thrive. And that's true 
even if your mental illness symptoms are completely controlled by medication or if you completely compensate for a brain injury with rehabilitation, you're still going to be affected by the way society stigmatises and stereotypes mental illness, dementia, intellectual disability. And I think that that should change. So that's kind of what the main meaning of neurodivergence is to me. Does that make sense to you guys? Hmm. So it, it's really interesting, um, your kind of definition there, in that I think, you know, a lot of people feel like when they hear the term neurodivergence, just thinking autism and ADHD. And, you know, what Monique and I have chatted about throughout kind of this podcast is that that definition is actually is way more expansive than just autism and ADHD. Um, and it's almost like, you know, autism and ADHD are sort of the poster children for neurodivergence because they're often the most kind of quote unquote functional in a sense. And I'm excited, Sarah, to talk to you a little bit more today about uh, functionality and high functioning, so to speak. Um, but I really love that you kind of expanded that to things that we often actually wouldn't even consider coming under that neurodivergent umbrella. So things like a brain injury or a neurodegenerative condition like dementia. Um, and I like it because it does really highlight that at its essence, neurodivergence is just exactly as you say, difference in brain setup, brain wiring, brain functionality. That means that that individual has all these friction points, right, in their kind of experiences, uh, you know, living in society. So that's a really, that's kind of the broadest definition I've ever heard of that. And I love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting too because I'm starting to hear language being used such as neuro-minority um, in addition to the term neurodivergent and I think that touches on um, what you, Sarah, and Michelle have just spoken about in terms of, um, you know, being part of that minority in a majority society and what does that mean for you in terms of, you know, masking, compensating, trying to fit in in a world that's not designed for your brain, no matter what your neurodivergence is. Mm, absolutely. Yes. I think that's such a key point um, because it is just all about the world being set up um, to not fit neurodivergent people very well. And as you say, Michelle, friction points. I really love that idea. That's a very good way of describing it. So, Sarah, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experiences of being neurodivergent in your childhood and teen years. Um, and in particular, are there kind of several points or a point where you recall kind of realising that you thought differently to other people? Oh, yes, um, <laughs> definitely. So my whole life, so many times I've had that realisation. And one of the things about my autistic memory is it's very strong very visual. So I can pull from my filing cabinet of memories, lots of examples, and it's almost like being transported back to that moment. So I can see it and feel the emotions very vividly. So for example, I remember starting kindergarten and it was someone's birthday and they bought cupcakes in little paper cupcake liners. And the teacher told me, Sarah, you can choose one and eat it. And I definitely needed a neurodivergent translator here. So I'd never had a cupcake before and I didn't know what the cupcake paper liners were. So I started to eat it and I could tell something was wrong straight away. 
I couldn't chew the liner and I could tell that it was paper and not food, but the instruction had been given, choose one and eat it. And my autistic rigid thinking made me become stuck. You know, I was three years old, stuck with a mouthful of cupcake liner, unable to eat it, but also unable to not eat it because I'd been told to eat it. And that autistic inflexible thinking of mine likes to follow instructions. It's tied deeply to my personal integrity. It's almost like I've signed a contract, so I have no choice. And eventually my very perplexed teacher noticed me frozen and unhappy with a mouthful of paper and told me to spit it out and I knew straight away from her expression and the fact that everyone else was enjoying their cakes that I'd done something a bit weird. So, you know, if I could go back in time, I'd tell my three-year-old self, don't worry, you were just trying to do what you were asked. It's not you. It's that the instructions were in neurotypical. And I think that was one of the first times I remember consciously thinking, oh, my way of doing things isn't right. So I'd better hide that and try harder to be like everyone else. And I think that's probably how a lot of autistic people who camouflage or mask their autism feel. Such a great example of the kind of differences between neurotypical language and autistic language. And, you know, it's interesting that you recall that happening at three, so young, because we can start to see there. And I'd be so interested to hear what your thoughts on this are, Sarah. Um, But from my perspective, I can kind of see little Sarah starting there at three to learn to mistrust her own interpretation of what people say, how she thinks the world is, you know, what's kind of right, what's wrong, what's incorrect, what's correct. And I feel like, you know, thinking of just clients who are a bit older, you know, in their teen years or adult years, this kind of perpetual sense of getting it wrong, like I'm always interpreting it wrong, doing the wrong thing leads to such an internalized belief that, you know, I can't trust my own body, what my mind tells me, my experiences. Is that something that you feel like has has built for you or, or built for you kind of over your, your childhood and teen years? Mm, absolutely, yes. Um, so I think that really describes my whole school experience in a nutshell is that it wasn't terrible. You know, I was quite lucky in that I was never horribly bullied and I was successful academically. So a lot of teachers I got along with quite well, but I never really felt safe to be myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. I always felt like I was struggling to keep up and understand. And I, you know, could see all the other people around me just knowing what to do and understanding situations. And I was always really puzzled and trying to copy, but feeling like there was something fundamentally lacking in me. Yeah, so that describes it very well. But it wasn't always negative, actually. There was a time, I remember when I was five um, at school assembly and I got an award, um, got a certificate and the school principal called my name, but she just slightly mispronounced it. So instead of she, what she said was Sarah Bernard instead of Sarah Bernard. So it's very subtle, right? But I have a type of synesthesia where I see words and sounds as well as hearing them. And so it actually looked completely different to me. And to me, that wasn't my name. So I sat there and I did not get up and the principal 
repeated my name, probably thinking that maybe I hadn't heard or maybe I didn't know what to do. And my teacher gave me a little nudge like, you know, you can do it, Sarah, get up and get your award. But I was like, no, that is not my name. (laughs) So I just remained seated, completely unmovable, um, because to me, it was like a a not truth. If I'd got up and and accepted that award, I would have been saying, my name is something different or my my name doesn't matter. Um, So, I actually, in some ways, in that situation, I felt good, like I was standing my ground for something to be truthful. Mm, So, that was sort of a positive experience. I think that's so interesting, Sarah, in that it really speaks to how a lot of uh, neurotypical people don't pick up on the details of things. So often when I'm working with autistic clients, I'll, I'll actually explain to them that cultural difference around actually most other people don't see things and focus on, you know, de- detailed things as much as you do. Um, and I give an example of like being in a crowded place and actually seeing from five meters away, my friend drop her ring on the dance floor and going and seeing who's picked it up, going over and going, come on, like making sure my friend gets the ring back and everyone else in the group of 10 people I'm with doesn't notice what's, what's happened, including my friend who dropped the ring. But for me, it's like an eagle eye vision thing of seeing the detail and being aware of everything in the environment. And when I explain that to people, they're, oh, my goodness. So other people don't see things as in as much detail as I do. And actually understanding that takes away so much of the social anxiety and feeling of being judged um, that people often go through because I think uh, we as autistic people will assume that everyone else is noticing all the teeny little, you know, quote unquote mistakes we think that we're making when oftentimes they're not. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super interesting hearing your examples of picking up on these really specific details um, and, and just that difference, I think, in, in our brains and, and culture. Mm, Yes, I can definitely imagine exactly what you're describing about noticing a visual detail like that. Um, Yeah, and it's a really good way of of looking at it, um, that detail-focused thinking versus not. Sarah, I'm really interested in this idea uh, that you were speaking about there, you know, around the principal or teacher kind of mispronouncing your name just slightly, and that felt like that wasn't true. Um, I'd love to kind of pack that a little bit further because I think it's something that a lot of parents of autistic kids really struggle with in the sense that lots of times for logistical, very valid, you know, logistical reasons or just trying to organize little people (laughs) through life. It's sort of like, oh my God, this doesn't matter. You know, let's just move on. But to the autistic child, oftentimes those things that seem trivial to others, exactly as you described, Sarah, is a matter of life and death almost, of truth or not truth. And I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit further for our listeners about what that feels like to you when something doesn't feel true. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I like to say that to autistic people, authenticity and truth are like oxygen. Um, So it's really 
tied to our sense of identity and our sense of self and what being a good person means to us. And it's interesting now because I'm a parent and I can relate exactly to what you're saying, you know, like sometimes the small detail you can see it as a parent more in the context of the big picture and just I think as a consequence of having more life experience. So you can see a child getting stuck on something that in the bigger context is not that important, but I do remember what it was like to be stuck on a detail and to be thinking that um, this is important and it's it's not just about the it's more about the underlying meaning or the truth or the authenticity between the behind the detail that that gets stuck and I think that's something that's missing maybe from the diagnostic criteria when it describes rigid thinking it's very um, pathologizing but in many ways that um, focus on truth and authenticity can become a huge asset to autistic people in their working life. Mm, absolutely. Is there any advice that you would give to parents of autistic kids when that type of thing is happening? Maybe something that you do with your kids or that you wish had been done with you when you're in those moments of stuck? Oh, yes. I think that the, always the key is to empathise with the person and help them process what's going on and why they feel stuck. So if you can get into their little headspace and say, look, I can see that this is really important to you and you're right, what you're saying is true, but we've got a problem. You know, if we get stuck on this thing, then we're going to be late. And if we're late, that this next thing will happen. And if you can give concrete examples of why you need them to move on, that is very, very helpful, I think, and probably would have helped me as a child. I've noticed for a lot of autistic people, knowing the why is so important. Like we actually need the context of the situation and give us a good reason why. Otherwise, why would we do X, Y, Z? You know, why is X, Y, Z important? Give us the logic, give us the facts. And then if it makes sense to us, sure, let's do it. Um, but yeah, I guess like a lot of uh, neurotypical people or people who are masking and maybe wanting to go, okay, this is a rule. I need to follow the rule. Um, we'll just sort of go ahead, um, and follow that. But yeah, actually take the time to explain why. And you, you know, as a parent, you might get more results. Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, I can relate to that very much. And I think that autistic people are often very strong on logic and reason. So if you give us a logic, logical reason, we will shift often quite easily. Um, and, and I think meeting the person where they're at, meeting the child where they're at so that they feel that you're standing beside them. I mean, if you feel like you've got someone beside you who's got your back, um, then that's very empowering for an autistic child who often feels like they're in the wrong and are confused about why that is. Um, so I think even, and it's not practical for it to happen every time as a parent, I do know that, but if you can do it, you know, a third of the time, that would be amazing. So um, we've talked a little bit about some of these signs that you experienced um, as a child. What was your adolescence like? Um, so adolescence, I remember 
I felt very safe most of the time at school because I'd found a group um, and it was a small group of kids with similar interests and interestingly some of them have also gone on to have diagnoses of different neurodivergences as well, which I think explains how we found each other and why we clicked. So that was really, I think, my saving grace in adolescence. Um, I probably tend to be more of an introverted type of person myself. So outside of school, I was quite happy to be a homebody and I would have a couple of friends who I would talk to on the phone a lot, um, but that was my main sort of social outlet Um, So I feel like I was quite lucky in that my high school days were reasonably safe for me Um, and it wasn't really until university that things started to get more challenging in um, navigating the social world. So tell us what was your experience of medical school and medical training like as a neurodivergent woman? Yes, so being an unidentified neurodivergent woman in medical school was like a level above what I could handle in terms of um, social interactions and also executive function. So the social world of university I found very overwhelming. There was this change from my, you know, lovely, safe, well-known, predictable group of mates at high school to, um, you know, all new people in medical school. And I really did want to have friends in medical school. In fact, I felt it was quite key to my survival. I sensed that because that's how I'd survived school, by being likable enough to have a group of friends. Um, That way I was sheltered from being vulnerable to bullies and I could observe and copy what my friends were doing to know what to do in different social situations. But at university, it was hard to be an active part of the social world and make new friends because the things the other students seem to be enjoying, like parties and nightclubs, they're actually a sensory nightmare for an autistic person. So looking back, it makes sense that I always look forward to the journey home from the party (laughs) with a close friend or two, but not the actual party. It was like this flood of relief, like, oh my gosh, that was such hard work. All the noise and the multitasking, drinking and eating and conversation and dancing. Now it's over. I can relax. But I realized that most people don't find it that hard or tiring. So that was my experience of the social world at university, a lot of overwhelm um, and, and very hard work to make connections. And then from the executive function point of view, I also found university very challenging. It was a lot less structured than high school. Um, I was balancing working a part-time job while studying and there was a much bigger volume of stuff to learn, which didn't match with my learning style that I'd adopted through school, which was basically last minute studying. Um, And so initially I really underperformed in a lot of my units and I even failed a unit and needed to repeat because I didn't have the natural executive function to plan how I was going to study. I gradually worked out structures that supported my individual learning style by trial and error. But at the time, I just thought that I wasn't trying hard enough or I must be overcomplicating things because it also came so intuitively to my university peers. And I often had a lot of self-doubt like, oh, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not cut out for medicine. But now I know I just had a different learning style. Yeah. And I wonder too, did you ever experience um, a sense of 
almost like identity crisis around that because I think for a lot of people who perform really well in high school because they're bright and they can kind of get through the workload by just exactly as you say, Sarah, last minute, pulling it all together, pulling it off. Um, And then that becomes such a key part of the self-identity that it's like, I'm smart. And then, then you get into medical school and then it's like, oh my God, that's confirmed. I am a smarty pants. And then you start in medical school or law school or, you know, whatever the case might be for people. And the executive function load is just next level. And then we start to see a lot of difficulty keeping up. And a lot of the time that can lead to this big internal sense of self-doubt and who am I and am I actually not smart? Um, And I'm just wondering, did that, was that kind of a process that you went through at the time, Sarah? Mm, yes, definitely. Definitely felt like an identity crisis. Like, oh, I'm actually not a smart person that I thought I was. Um, there is something missing here. Um, and studying is not what I thought that it was. It's not about last minute learning everything rapidly. It's actually about planning and organization. And those are things that I'm not very good at. Um, I've never had to rely on those things before, but I had to suddenly learn them. Mm. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to how much society is set up to rely on executive function skills. This is one of my big bugbears with the concept of IQ and intelligence and whatever, in that everyone has different areas of strength and you could have um, really actually amazing conceptual thinking skills, problem-solving skills, abstract thinking skills, but struggle with your executive functioning as do most neurodivergent people. And that presents quite a significant barrier to demonstration of those, you know, underlying skills, knowledge, et cetera. And I think, you know, having that understanding of the different areas of cognition that are uh, involved in things like school success, university success, you know, various different professions really helps people um, let go of some of that shame around, oh my God, maybe I'm not smart. It's not that you're not smart. It's that you're neurodivergent. So you're struggling to keep up with the executive function load. Um, And I think that's quite freeing. Mm, Definitely. It's really helped me now understanding that I'm neurodivergent, reflect on all those experiences and realise that it was just I was in a setup that didn't support my executive function. Even now that I've learned quite a lot of executive function skills um, by explicitly sort of practising and doing things differently, I do best where the executive function is embedded in the structure of what I'm doing. So I'm trying to work out ways of asking for that. Um, I'm very lucky, actually, that I've got such a supportive husband and family who are good at executive functions, so I tend to outsource a lot of stuff to them. Um, and, and that really helps me, helps me be successful and to use my, my strengths and not get stuck using up all my energy on executive function. Once I finally became a doctor, so I was out of medical school, but in the early stages of my career, which is still a lot of training, right? So you qualify as a doctor, but to then become a specialist in whatever area you choose, it's another six, seven, 10 years of training. So you're going to be in that hierarchy for a long time. And my main challenge was not at all the being a doctor side, um, looking after patients, that bit has always been a pleasure. But the challenge was office politics and social hierarchies in the hospital. Navigating that, I would often just be 
blindsided by the way people behaved. I knew that being liked and viewed positively was the way to have a better time at work, but the ways to build social capital at work are really hard for a neurodivergent person. So things like volunteering for a last-minute change of shift to help out a colleague, changing my plans unexpectedly at the last minute fills me with anxiety. So it's very hard to be the one to volunteer in those situations Um, and it might make you look like you're reluctant or not wanting to help which is definitely not the case Um, and then things like having to make a false apology where you've offended someone by being perhaps a little bit too honest um, or even worse being in a position where you might need to give false praise to people who don't deserve it because it would be dangerous to disagree with the group. So you do it often, but it just feels a bit disgusting and inauthentic um, and it can make work life not very good for autistic people. Um, But I think over the years, after a lot of autistic observation, I was able to learn these patterns of the hierarchies and the different interactions. So now I can be more successful and understand them better. Um, And I've also learned that my neurodivergent thinking, because it's different, actually gives me some advantages a lot of the time. And that ability to creatively problem solve or to not buy into the group think sometimes helps me think of a really novel solution to a problem. Um, And that's become valuable to me in my work and my department values me for that as well. So I think my message to autistic and ADHD professionals would be, you know, take your time observing and do what you need to do to stay socially safe because while you're in that pattern recognition phase, you're learning and then your time to shine will come later. Absolutely. I'm wondering too, as you were describing that, Sarah, I was just thinking of the overlay and the intersection of neurodivergence and gender. Um, You know, and I think even just being a female in workplaces that have a lot of politics, there's a lot of uh, gender-based expectations. Um, you know, there's there's research, and I'm going to butcher this. I probably should have looked this up before I say it, but um, <laughs> caveat, caveat, caveat. Um, but there's certain research, right, that says that, um, you know, if men are speaking for 50% of the time, so equal amount, they perceive that they've been speaking for like 10% of the time. And so, so men perceive that if they're actually speaking at an equal, you know, level to women, that they, that women are dominating the conversation. And if men are speaking for the majority of the time, they perceive that it's been equal. So there's so many um, intersecting identities when it comes to being socially uh, successful in a professional sense. And I wonder if, if you ever kind of experienced any of that intersection or if for you Sarah you you mainly experienced it from the point of view of being an autistic woman Mm, no I think I can definitely relate to that intersection of gender um, as well as the neurodivergence and definitely you know as well as the research that you're talking about which I have heard of there's research showing that uh, women doctors get interrupted much more frequently by colleagues, um, especially colleagues in other health professions like nurses and allied health, um, because we're perceived as more approachable. So we have 
have a sort of extra burden of workload on top of what our male colleagues experience. Um, I think often people will bring us the more difficult um, challenges because we're perceived as being more empathetic and kind. So we'll get asked to see the more distressed patients or the more distressed relatives, um, whereas uh, staff are less likely to interrupt men doctors and ask them to do that. So, yeah, I definitely see that intersection. And interestingly, I used to often get told that I'm very bossy by my patients. And now I realise that's because I wasn't necessarily behaving as they would expect a woman to behave. Um, so I think some of my autistic direct communication comes across as not matching my gender. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so fascinating. And, and these studies have been done right from to little kids, how we perceive the same communication style um, from a female versus a male, you know, the words that we put around it, the connotations that it brings, that kind of discrepancy between assertive versus bossy. And, you know, as you were talking there too, I was just thinking uh, when you were saying, you know, oh, um, I might maybe don't agree with the group think or what people are saying, but the polite thing to do is to, you know, go along and give this person praise. I feel like there's so much more uh, space and leeway for men to be contrarians you know, it's almost like, oh, that was so brave of that man to stand up and say like this kind of, you know, contrary opinion. But then because of gender expectations, it's like, oh, that was rude for that woman to stand up and say the exact same thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I see that play out a lot at work. Um, yes, yes. Very keen observation. And I agree with it 100%. Mm. Yeah, e even things around bluntness um i definitely think there's a gender a gender thing around that in different professions because i feel like if you're a male doctor you can get away with uh appearing blunt or having a poor bedside manner um whereas if you're a female doctor um you may not, I guess, be perceived as well by other colleagues because of that bluntness or having that particular bedside manner. But, you know, you can actually turn that into a strength. If you, not that you should have to, but if you become an expert in your area, um, I don't I don't know about you, but I found people will come to me asking for my blunt opinion because they know I will be direct and tell them the truth, even if they don't like it. And if people ask for my opinion, you know, collegially as professionals, I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, look, do you want the blunt opinion or do you not want me to tell you like the, the truth about this? And they'll say, either say, yep, I want your blunt opinion or no, actually I prefer if you just tell me what I want to hear. So, <laughs> but then that's their choice. <laughs> I mean, who says that? Who says? Um, really? <laughs> yeah, I've had people, I've had colleagues say, no, I'd prefer to just you know, think what I want to think. <laughs> like, that's fine. You know, you've made that choice. All right, all right. <laughs> yes. And with colleagues, if they've said that they want the blunt opinion and they don't like it, well, they've brought that on themselves. Totally. So. <laughs> It's their problem. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. It's funny because I think, you know, maybe without realising it, it's kind of a um, that, you know, do you want me to be blunt? It's actually a very neurotypical social tool to use to say that, right? Because 
in essence, I, and the reason I'm like, really, Monique, <laughs> was that it's very, um, I would be very surprised someone saying, you know, if you've offered, like, do you want me to be blunt? Someone saying, oh, no, I actually don't. Because that's actually against the social contract, right? If you've said, do you want me to be blunt? You, it, It's kind of a bit like, odd or uncomfortable to then follow that up and say, no, I want you to lie to me, basically, because that's <laughs> yes. essentially like what you're saying if you say no. So in saying, do you want me to be blunt? You're basically saying, I'm going to say what what I think, um, but now that you've agreed and acquiesced to me communicating to you in this way, there's no social faux pas right? Because you've actually agreed that this is now the contract of our communication. And so anything that comes after this, um, exactly what you say, Monique, um, this is what you've agreed to. So I think it's actually a very useful tool just to say, hey, um, look, do you, do you want me to be like honest and blunt about it? I think 9.9 .9 times out of 10 a neurotypical person is going to say yes, regardless of whether they want you to be blunt or not. But that's great because then, you know, you've kind of lubricated that um, communication friction. So yeah, great, great advice. Honestly, <laughs> the people who have probably said, no, I don't want that have been probably other neurodivergent yes. people. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 That's what I was thinking. <laughs> And I, I also broadcast at work. I just say, like, I don't do, like, politics. Don't don't talk to me. Don't include me. I don't want to know what's going on. <laughs> but I have the luxury of doing that because I'm in private practice. Um, so I stay out of the politics. But if people want help with something or they want an honest opinion, I'm your person to come to. So I kind of put out there, like, what I'm available for and what I'm not available for. I broadcast it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I'm going to think about ways I might be able to incorporate that. Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. So Sarah, can you tell us what was your journey to diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So I followed the classic pathway of autistic parents. My first child was identified as autistic at age two when I was pregnant with our second child. And unfortunately, even though I'm a doctor, medical school had taught me almost nothing about autism or disability in general. And so I'm sorry to say that all I had were a lot of stereotypes that make me really cringe now that I think back to them um, because they were very inaccurate ideas. So initially I was just really quite frightened for my child growing up autistic and I was just desperate to work out how this gorgeous kid could have a good life as an autistic person. But lucky for me, and thanks to my autistic inclination to be a relentless seeker of information, the internet was my gateway to discovering writing from the autistic community. Um, the first great autistic thing I read was Julia Bascom's blog, The Obsessive Joy of Stimming, which was just beautiful. 
And then I started following the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, um, which is a blog that features autistic content. And I'm so grateful to all the brilliant, creative autistic adults who showed me that being autistic is valid and an important way of being. So then once I was open to the idea of autistic as a mix of strengths and difficulties from existing in a neurotypical world, I could start to notice my own differences and how they matched my child and actually start to embrace them instead of viewing them as negative. And that totally changed the way I felt as a parent in a really good way. So I felt more connected to my child and proud of our shared neurology. I think the biggest realisation was learning about camouflaging and that really allowed me to see that everything about me is autistic and everything I thought was neurotypical was just very convincing camouflage. And then at that point, I did debate for a while about whether I'd remain self-identified or whether I'd seek a formal autism assessment. And I should probably say that I'm very aware it's a privilege to even have that choice, um, to a choice to get a diagnosis as an adult because there's so many barriers to seeking a diagnosis of autism or ADHD for adults. Um, but my biggest concern at that stage was making myself vulnerable to discrimination if I had a diagnosis. But eventually I didn't feel like I could fully say I embraced my child as a formally diagnosed autistic person if I was deliberately avoiding that for myself because my child might not actually have the choice to hide and camouflage like I could. So I felt like I couldn't let them face that alone um, and I felt a sort of responsibility to walk through life with an autism diagnosis beside them and maybe be able to smooth the way for them a little bit. Um, so that's what led me to seek a, a diagnostic assessment. And then my ADHD diagnosis came a bit later, again, after my kids were identified ADHD and I learned about it and saw all the patterns and evidence of it in my life. Um, and in some ways that felt like less of a big deal compared to accepting myself as autistic but in other ways, not so much because I learned about the stigma of taking medication for a brain condition and also about how ADHD is unfortunately viewed as a bit of a lifestyle choice. You know, things like time blindness, struggling with organisation in our society are considered character flaws or a lack of care. And compared to autism, it seems harder to get people to accept ADHD is not a choice, it's a neurology. So, Sarah, I find that for many kind of so-called high-functioning neurodivergent people, the process of coming out um, can be quite a layered experience and sometimes quite a difficult one. What was your experience of coming out as an autistic and ADHD woman? Mm, I absolutely love this question um, because the decision to come out as autistic and ADHD at my workplace was a one of the most difficult decisions I've made, but it turned out to be very valuable. And you mentioned coming out um, with my autistic and ADHD identity, but I think possibly the bigger identity shift was actually in identifying as disabled. 
because absolutely that quote-unquote high-functioning label is definitely how a lot of people new to autism and neurodivergence concepts would think of me. I have a successful career as a doctor and I have a busy life balancing parenting and working. So the term high-functioning, I can see how it would make sense to a lot of people. But something I learned quite early on from the autistic community is high functioning is actually not a compliment and it's also not accurate because if you think about what it implies, it's really meant as a compliment because your disability is hidden. And if it's good to hide it, it must be something shameful, right? That's the implication. And that just feeds into inaccurate negative stereotypes and stigma for disabled people. So I want to change that because there's nothing shameful about being disabled. I explain to my kids that being disabled just means you have a different brain or a different body compared to typical people. And that means you need to do things in a different way or get different help. Like a wheelchair user needs a wheelchair and ramps to get around instead of walking and taking the stairs. Or I, as an autistic ADHD person, quite often need instructions written down so I can look at them and keep checking them instead of hearing spoken instructions once and keeping all of that in my mind. So those are just different examples of access needs and different dis- that different disabled people might have. And the other bit I said was the term high functioning is inaccurate because it suggests that people like me don't need much support, which brings me to the other big shift in my identity as a disabled person that I'd love to see shift in society. And that's the idea of independence versus interdependence. So interdependence is a pretty new word to me, but it's just a beautiful concept that captures exactly what I think needs to change to include disabled people better. So as a doctor and as a parent of disabled kids, therapy goals are a frequent part of my life. So this is where you set goals for skills or things that you want to learn or that your child wants to learn. And usually the goals are all about becoming independent, doing things by yourself with minimal reliance on external assistance, which on face value sounds really great. So the exciting part is or the problem with seeking independence as the end goal for disabled people is that it's always going to take us more energy or more time compared to non-disabled people. And if you're constantly working harder and longer to achieve life's basic tasks, your opportunities are actually going to be limited by that. So then enter interdependence. So this concept is relying on external assistance is actually a good thing because it increases your time and energy budget, which leads to opportunities and choices for disabled people. So, for example, people might be surprised to learn that I, as a successful doctor, find telephone conversations really, really limiting. Telephone talk relies completely on processing what you hear, auditory processing. And for me, part of my autistic ADHD neurology is auditory processing disorder. So I process what people say extremely slowly and my brain can't sort out important noises from non-important noises. So the voice I'm trying to listen to on the phone might suddenly disappear because all I can hear is a car driving past and I miss important information. If something needs to be discussed by the phone, I can do it. 
but it's like running a marathon to me. So instead of having a phone conversation and then being done for the day, I will instead outsource phone conversations to other people or I'll find an alternative. So I'll look for places that take online bookings instead of telephone bookings. Um, I'll try and communicate with people via email or text instead of talking on the phone. And I'm not getting any more independent with making phone calls. But by outsourcing it or changing it to something accessible, for me, I get a lot more done in my day and I can use that energy for things that are important to me. Does that, does that make sense? Oh my God, such a beautiful and thorough explanation of um, the identity of disability and that interdependence versus independence, um, you know, framework. And I really, I love that. I want to talk about the disability stuff in a second, because I think that's really important. Um, But I love that distinction between independence and interdependence. And I think it's such a um, cultural kind of uh, hangover that we have. You know, earlier we were talking about the intersection of gender and neurodivergence. And our cultural identity is also a piece of our identity as well. You know, what the culture kind of says should be um, the ideal. And I think as a society, we absolutely prioritize individualism and being completely independent. And the problem is complete dependence and complete independence are opposite ends of a scale, neither which are functional. And what we actually need to learn as a society is how we can swing that pendulum back closer to the middle and how we can actually learn dependence as a society. And I think this is where people like people on the autism spectrum, people like ADHDers, people who have disability and are reliant on that interdependence to function for all the reasons that you so well explained there, Sarah. Um, This is the thing that as a whole society, we can learn so much from. Who cares if someone else has to make phone calls for you? <laughs> you know, and um, yes, you, you were talking earlier, you know, we were talking previously before recording um, just about kids in school who maybe have dyspraxia um, or issues with writing or things like that. Um, if motor planning is really difficult for someone or for a child in particular, Who cares if someone gets their ruler out for them and lines a page on their book? By doing that, what you've done is just taken off a whole massive load from their, you know, cognitive system, which they can then use to actually engage in learning rather than using all of that energy in drawing a line on the page. So I love that explanation that you gave. I think that's so well put. Mm, Yes. And I think it's often such a barrier to um, education assistants and teachers just feeling okay to jump in and help. So I think you can be really guided by what the disabled person is telling you. If they're asking for help, you can trust that because they know what they need help with. You know, you can trust that autonomy and that choice for them to decide what they want help with, what they would like to spend their energy on. I think too, it's it's such a new concept, independence. You know, if we think back to the history of um, different societies, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, when we've been living in villages, we actually have always functioned in communities and we've always functioned like in Western and non-Western societies in a group with that interdependence, knowing that you can't do it all 
if you want to survive. So I really think that maybe the industrial revolution and like it's probably only been in the last, you know, maybe 100 or 200 years that this concept of, you know, oh, wow, being completely independent and doing everything yourself is the new ideal. We've got to remember it's actually something new. It's not the way that we've done things for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Mm, I think that's such a great point. And we've seen even things like um, multi-generational households become less common now. So it's much more likely that older people who have support needs won't be living with their children and grandchildren to support them. They might instead be in residential care or relying on external services to come and fill those support needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's capitalism, right? It's every single person, their utility is how much they can, you know, produce. What's your utility as a cog in the production wheel? And that makes total sense then that the goal is independence. You need to be a completely self-sufficient cog. <laughs> and then as, so, as soon as you stop producing, um, you can just get lost. Whereas really as human beings, we need to thrive in that interdependence model. And the other thing I just wanted to touch on there, Sarah, that you mentioned was this idea of coming out as a disabled person. So interesting because I think for a lot of people who are on their kind of journey to neurodivergent diagnosis, um, a lot of the feeling can be, or or there can be a lot of um, confusion, I guess, around well, if this isn't a disorder, right, if this isn't something that's wrong with me, how can I then be disabled? And it's such an important thing to unpack and to separate in that it's absolutely not something that's wrong with you or disordered about a person, but it's also something that is disabling because it makes it harder to access or engage in the community, the society as it's set up. Um, And the example that I always use is one of literacy. We are a literate society and to be able to be fully participative in society as it stands, you have to be literate or that significantly um, improves how easy it is to be, you know, participative in society. So people who have dyslexia or other forms of literacy difficulties that's a disability in our society. But for various tribes or groups of people that rely more on visual spatial skills, if you have very poor visual spatial ability, that would be a disability in that society because it prevents you from engaging in that society. So I think, you know, that's the really clear delineation or, um, you know, line there between what's a disorder versus what's a disability. They're actually separate things. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, something that really helped me was learning that the opposite of disabled is actually enabled. And so that means that people who are enabled, it's because the world is designed for them. If the world wasn't designed for them, if it was designed, say, for autistic people, they would be the ones who are disabled. Oh, I love that. I've never uh, heard that articulated before. That's so great. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, are you disabled or are you enabled? And you might be enabled in certain situations and settings and disabled in other situations and settings. That's fantastic. I'm going to adopt that. 
Oh, cool. I got it from um, Neuroqueer Heresies, a book by Nick Walker, which is absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend it for anyone wanting a deep dive into neurodiversity concepts. Sarah, can you tell us about an organisation called Autistic Doctors International? Oh, yes, I would love to. So um, I discovered Autistic Doctors International, ADI, in the very early days after I received my diagnosis of autism. So it's an online peer support and mentorship group, and all of the group members are Autistic Doctors And there's a separate group for autistic medical students also. The founder of the group is Dr. Mary Doherty, who's an autistic anaesthetist based in Ireland. And she's a fantastic autistic advocate and a wonderful mentor. Um, The reason I discovered the group was that Mary wrote an article in the British Medical Association News about working as an autistic doctor and this online group she created. And I was so excited when I read the article because I'd never considered there would be enough autistic doctors to form a support group. So I immediately sent Mary a Facebook message and a couple of hours later I was joined to the group. And it's just the best, you know, being among other autistic doctors. We have such similar experiences, even though we're based all around the world. Um, We trade tips on reasonable accommodations and navigating executive dysfunction and sensory overload in the workplace and navigating the workplace social world as well. And what's really amazing is I found so many other doctors who also want to improve the healthcare system, you know, make it fairer and remove discrimination. Uh, Lots of individuals in the group seem to tend towards whistleblowing, which often, you know, makes us quite unpopular with management structures and vulnerable to poor career progression. So it really helps doctors like that to have a group to vent to and have a discussion about the risks and benefits of whistleblowing before they actually jump in and do it. Um, Also, our neurodivergent minds together are really good at creative solutions. And so not surprisingly, ADI has become really strong on advocacy for autistic doctors, autistic patients, and the autistic community in general. And the group is starting to put out some really good autistic-led research um, that you can see on the website. And that's something very exciting to me because I'm becoming more involved in that work. And that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, So, for example, ADI did a great study about barriers to healthcare for autistic people, which is in BMJ Open, so you can search it online. It's freely available um, and it uncovered loads of ways that we can make the healthcare system better for autistic patients. And most of the changes would actually be really easy and low cost to implement. So just, you know, things like having online booking systems instead of phone bookings um, and having doctors take patients seriously when they talk about symptoms because a fear of not being taken seriously and an experience of not having symptoms taken seriously was identified as a really common barrier. And that's so easy to fix, isn't it? You know, that's fantastic to have that peer group and have that kind of community to be able to navigate such an intense profession at the best of times, right? (laughs) Even more so if you're neurodivergent. And this is one of the beauties of, you know, the internet and being able to connect with people all over the world in that 
even though all these people might not be local to you, exactly as you're saying, you know, you share so many similar experiences um, that that's, I'm sure that that's such a amazing, useful, empowering, incredible resource, particularly for the medical students that that you mentioned as well. You know, I, I'm imagining as you were describing your experience of medical school, if you'd had a resource like that as a student, what would that have meant to you? Mm, Oh, absolutely. Yes. It would have been so good to know why I was finding things difficult. And the doctor's group is also available to support medical students. So if an individual is having difficulty, um, a call will go out to the doctor group for help, advocacy, that kind of thing. So that's really wonderful. Sounds like that's so needed as well, because I could imagine that a lot of um, neurodivergent doctors and autistic doctors and medical students may burn out, you know, before they actually get qualified or burn out while working in the field because of maybe not knowing that they're neurodivergent or not having that appropriate workplace accommodations or fit. And, you know, so we're losing doctors from the profession that we really need to uh, retain. Um, And it sounds like this organization is really leading the way, you know, internationally for other health organizations and mental health professions as well. Like I feel like Autistic Doctors International is really uh, leading the way. And I wish we had something similar for psychology. Mm, yeah, that would be absolutely fabulous, wouldn't it, to, to see a similar group for psychologists, I agree, yeah. So, Sarah, you mentioned that part of uh, the work that Autistic Doctors International does is talking a little bit about accommodations at work, uh, ways to make the workplace more functional. Can you share some of those with us or perhaps some of the accommodations that you've asked for or the changes, you know, in your work setting that help you? Mm. Yeah, so I'm I'm still a bit new to being openly neurodivergent in my working life. Um, so, so far, I've only made one really explicit disability access request. And I did talk to um, the group Autistic Doctors International about the best way to go about it and asked for tips that others had asked for as well. Um, And it ended up being really, really useful and it levelled the playing field for me. What I asked for was some disability accommodations for a job interview. So an opportunity had come up to apply for a new position, something that I was very passionate about. Um, But up until that point, job interviews have basically been my autistic nightmare. Um, The whole process, I think, is so geared towards neurotypical strengths I I mean, I don't get me wrong. I think it's reasonable that employers want to select reliable, trustworthy, hardworking, honest employees. And job interviews are meant to be about judging job applicants for those qualities. But the problem is they're actually silently judging your body language and facial expressions and your ability to process complex questions and think up coherent answers with relevant examples on the spot. And as an autistic person, you can look not very good at those things, but it doesn't mean that you're not a fabulous employee, that you're not honest and hardworking and reliable and all of those things. So I asked for a few adjustments to the interview format and they were given to all of the applicants, whether they were disabled or not. Um, And what I asked for was for the questions to be direct, 
and not have multiple parts because my working memory and executive function really struggles to hold on to multiple pieces of information while I'm saying them. So I might like say the first part of my answer and then have a really good second point, but I get to the second point and it's gone, you know, off the clipboard, disappeared, who knows when it's going to come back and then I'm frozen. And the other thing I asked for was for everyone to have 20 minutes of reading and preparation time, somewhere nice and quiet, which meant that I could read through the questions and write a few points under each one, which was such a relief, you know, to have some visual prompts and a structure ready to go. And it was by far the most successful job interview I've ever done. Yeah, that's great. Um, Some really uh, clear examples there of how to actually ask for communication support. Oh, good. Yeah, no, it was incredibly helpful. Are there any additional adjustments that you use or ask for in your professional life? So nothing that I've specifically asked for, but I do, I have developed quite a few strategies, which are like, um, I guess they're like supports or adjustments that I've implemented. So I use a lot of calendar reminders. I like to communicate in text-based modes wherever possible. Um, Those things are very supportive of my autistic neurology, even though I haven't had to formally ask for them. I also find that I like to work without distractions. So I've found an office that um, is very remote and I can work, you know, by myself when I'm, you know, in work mode. And I also set aside specific time for socialising because I find workplace socialising very draining. So what I like to do is I have a coffee break with my team members at some point during the morning. And that's like, in my mind, my social time where I ask people all their questions, you know, all the questions, how are they doing, that kind of thing. Because I know it's good for the team and I know that they really value it as neurotypical health professionals. Um, so I'm happy to do it for them. But then it's, you know, within a set time frame. And I know that once that's finished, I can go back into work mode and not have to think too much about being social. So, Sarah, you've written on your blog about mirror touch synesthesia. Can you explain what this is and tell us about your experience of this? Yeah, for sure. Um, I love talking about synesthesia. I have a few different types, but mirror touch synesthesia is something I only recently realised I have after reading an article about autistic healthcare therapists and nurses. So, mirror touch synesthesia is when you experience in your own body what someone else is experiencing in their body. So, for example, a person with mirror touch synesthesia might observe someone bump their head and then they'll also feel a bump on their head and it can vary quite a lot. So, some people will actually feel it like a painful bump, whereas other people will feel more of a subtle echo of the sensation in the same body part. So, as soon as I read about it, it was like, ah, a moment of realisation because this explained a whole series of difficult experiences as a medical student and as a doctor early in my career. And it actually strongly influenced my career. So, for example, I can remember in medical school being in a lecture by a hand surgeon about hand injuries and there were all these massive images on the screen of different hand injuries Um, and I could immediately 
recently start to feel those in my own hands and there were so many pictures and it became more and more intense and uncomfortable that I actually fainted in the lecture theatre. It was really awkward and embarrassing. And then the thing was it happened many times after that. Um, So basically any situation where I was seeing a lot of gore or surgery, I would have quite intense experiences of it in my own body and I fainted many times and it happened often enough that I had to learn how to faint safely. Like I had to get myself out of the way so I wouldn't crash into medical equipment or into patients. And my various supervisors, they didn't understand. Um, they didn't think too much of it. They were quite kind. Um, it's not unheard of, definitely, for doctors and medical students to faint because seeing those things for the first time can be quite confronting. And they would reassure me I'd grow out of it. But as time went on, I could see that this was not something that I was growing out of. And I came to realize that I'd actually have to steer my career away from any options that had surgery in them. That's so interesting. And do you experience that as like quite an intense feeling in, you know, the relevant body part? Mm, Yes, I do, definitely. And it's first in the body part, but then I will also pick up the person's emotions that they're experiencing. Um, And sometimes I will, you know, pick up on, on other feelings. Like I can remember seeing a lost child at the supermarket when I was younger and I was just, you know, immediately feeling I've lost my parents and what that child was seeing and feeling as well. So, you know, being transported into those moments, I think it's it's a little bit of mix of that strong empathy that a lot of autistic people have and this type of synesthesia that gives you the strong physical experience as well. Do you recall having that kind of physical experience as um, like in your childhood and your teen years as well? Like did this, you know, when you found out about mirror touch synesthesia, were you sort of like, oh, my God, all of these things that I've experienced kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. I can remember being younger and seeing a woman who had a bee sting on her arm and I could feel that bee sting in my own arm and the swelling and the tightness and uh, she was, you know, very distressed by it and I picked up on that as well. So I just wanted to get out of there away from that bee sting so I could stop thinking about it and feeling it. Um, So that really makes sense to me now. It sounds like that could be quite an overwhelming experience as well and contribute to sensory overload too. Mm, Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yes, it's definitely an overwhelming experience. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us today. It's been so fascinating to chat with you about your experience as a doctor, about your mirror touch synesthesia. Um, And I in particular have loved unpacking the concept of disability, independence, interdependence. Um, Such an interesting conversation today. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. And thank you so much for, you know, putting some disability accommodations in place for me. That was really helpful too, sending me through the questions ahead of time so that I could prepare. Um, Thank you very much. No problem. Our pleasure. And Sarah, is there anything that you would like to let listeners know about? Anywhere that listeners can find out more about what you do or more about Autistic Doctors International? 
Mm, yes, so I definitely recommend checking out the Autistic Doctors International website, www.autisticdoctorsinternational.com. You can find all of the research outputs there. It's really, really exciting. Um, and I write a little blog too, which is neurodivergentdoctor.wixsite.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions, chat about feelings, our favourite things to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle the Neurodivergent Woman podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.